The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord Christ. Jesus said, For the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in this morning's gospel passage, we pick up right where we left off last week. At the beginning of Matthew 25, Jesus has told his disciples the parable of the ten virgins. And now he expands on his point by jumping right into another parable, the parable of the talents. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom life he will usher in through his death and resurrection. And here he says it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Now in the first century, first century Israel, it was not uncommon for wealthy landowners to do this, to go on long journeys sometimes to oversee other properties or to go on government assignments. And when they went away like this, they would typically leave a servant in charge. The Greek word for servant here is really slaves. But remember that being a slave in the first century Roman Empire was pretty different from the chattel slavery 
that we're most familiar with from American history. In Jesus' day, some slaves could be trained in accounting. Slaves could buy and sell property. They could even, as here, manage whole estates. So in this parable, the master divides up considerable sums of money according to the servant's abilities before he goes away to three. He does this to three of his servants. To one he gives five, to the other two, to the other one. Now believe it or not, a talent was a whole lot of money. If you added up the wages of an average person in those days that they would earn over their lifetime, it would add up to be about one talent. So a single talent might have been the equivalent of a, a million or two dollars today, right? But at the heart of the parable is the difference between the servants and how they respond to being given this large sum. The first two servants respond as the master had hoped they would. Verse 16 says that the one who received five went at once and traded and made five more. So also the one who had two made two more. But verse 18 says the one who had received the one talent responded very differently from the first two. For he went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, believe it or not, this really happened. I mean, this type of thing. According to scholar Craig Keener, still to this day, archaeologists will occasionally come across such buried reserves of money from that era. As recently as 2014, one was found. Money that was never retrieved for whatever reason, right? We can imagine maybe the person never told anybody and died before they could dig it up. People did this, they buried money in the ground because it was considered to be, of course, the safest way of protecting it. However, it was obviously also the least profitable thing that you could do with your money. The dirt doesn't give back much interest. Well, beginning at verse 19, we see what happens when the master return, returns, likely years later, especially based on how much the first two guys have made, Jesus says, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who'd received five came forward, bringing five more, saying, Master, you gave me five. Here, I've made five more. And his master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents brought his extra two forward. And the same thing happens, the same response from the master. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, there's good reason to believe that when Jesus told this parable, he would have used the Aramaic word for joy here in verses 21 and 23, which also in Aramaic means festival. Therefore, many scholars have interpreted this to mean that the master, is, uh, the master threw a feast at his return, and he is then saying that he's going to honor these helpful and faithful servants at that feast. So much like the bridesmaids, the wise ones from last week, these two servants are able to enjoy a feast that, of course, represents the kingdom life of God. But in verse 24, we get to see how the third servant explains his decision to bury what the master gave him and how the master responds to him. Jesus says, He also who had received one talent came forward and said, Master, 
I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have it back. Have what's yours. Well, the master doesn't respond well to this. You wicked and slothful servant. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers at at least. And at my coming, I should have at least received what was my own with interest. And regarding that last comment in 27, even in those days, if a man wasn't willing to invest his master's funds aggressively, like those first two servants had, in Jesus' day, there were banks where he could have invested the money that were equally as safe to burying it in a hole, right? There's risk with everything, right? And it would have at least provided some interest with the passage of time. But instead, the master has the single talent taken from this first servant and given to the servant who'd turned five into ten, proven himself. Jesus explains that the principle of the kingdom that this parable illustrates is that to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the master has this worthless servant cast into outer darkness in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which I have to admit, I mean, that takes fire in somebody to the next level, right? It's a little bit more than a pink slip. (laughs) Now, the most conventional way of interpreting this parable is to understand these talents that the master gives his servant to represent the ways God has uniquely blessed each one of us. In fact, our modern understanding and meaning of the word talent today, referring to a special ability or aptitude, that developed from this particular parable about 500 years ago is where that meaning kind of came into use from the parable of the talents. So the traditional and most obvious meaning of this parable is that God blesses each one of us with gifts, which could include time, could include the gift of talents, could include treasure, And we are meant to use them ultimately in service of the Lord for God's glory and the expansion of his kingdom. But there are all sorts of reasons, of course, that we may choose not to use the gifts that he's given to us as God intended. And even when we do or try to or recognize the gifts we have, it's not without its challenges. In a few minutes, I'll be talking more about a sermon by a woman named Laura Harbert. She mentioned how she believes the Lord has gifted her with an unusual level of compassion. Good gift to have, but she said it can cause her heart to just break for people, right? Has it give her a great capacity to empathize. But she said this also means that on plane rides, this is before COVID, on plane rides, she never gets to just chill out and read a magazine. She always finds herself in a conversation with somebody Next, sitting next to her who's list, and listening to their problems, they share their struggles, right? They find her a good listener. These are first world problems, but suffice to say, even when we use our gifts, it doesn't mean it's easy, doesn't mean it's not without its challenges. So if the Holy Spirit has, has already been speaking to you this morning about some resistance you may have to using a particular gift for his glory, time, talent, treasure, I would encourage you to pay attention to that, to commit to exploring that with the Lord. What's hindering you from that? 
However, this week, my studies took me in a little different direction. When I first read this passage earlier this week, what stood out to me from the parable was verses 24 to 25, where the third servant explains, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And that's why he hid the talent in the ground. Now, since the master here represents God, this part about the master reaping where he doesn't sow and gathering where he doesn't scatter seed, that's been understood to refer to God's sovereignty, right? In other words, because God is all-powerful, God is able to do whatever he wants and bring about whatever he wants. Therefore, he doesn't truly need for us to serve him or do anything for him, right? So this rationale would represent how we might excuse not using what we've been given for God's glory because he doesn't really need it. God can bring about his kingdom on his own if he wants to, might be the attitude. Of course, that's really no good excuse at all because whether he needed us or not, he has chosen to bring about his kingdom through us in this way. Though we, be, though we are imperfect vessels, he equips us to play a role in his purposes being accomplished. But more than this part, what stood out to me was the first half of this servant's excuse, or the bookends, really, when he explains that he knew the master to be a hard man. And then the next sentence says, I was afraid. I suppose what struck me is that if this master is supposed to represent God, just how how this description is contrary to the truth of who God is. Scripture shows us through the revelation of Jesus that God above all is love. God is love. And yet we know that that reality doesn't stop many, many people from perceiving or feeling like God is a hard man, something like a hard man to be afraid of, including believers. Absolutely. So this parable points to the reality that the way we perceive God, whether it is accurate or not, has an enormous influence on the choices we make, the paths we choose in life, the extent that God can use us, and the depth of our relationship with him. It's hard to have much relationship with somebody you're afraid of. So when I first read this on Monday, what I actually felt was compassion for this third servant. That he would perceive of the master as being this way, as being hard, and thus represent all of the people who, who fe- have felt the same way about God. All the times any of us have felt this, that way about God. And with this man in the parable, we can see how this can lead to make, making such poor choices that for us it can have great consequences in life and, and be an obstacle to us entering into the joy of the Lord if we perceive him to be hard, if we're afraid of him. And yet, if we do feel that way, whether, we, whether it's, you know, even though it's incorrect, it almost seems inevitable that if we feel that way, we're going to take these negative paths in response. 
So this week I began to wonder, what could make someone think this way about God? What could make any of us think this way about God? That God is a hard, like a hard man to be afraid of. You know, people can misconstrue God in all sorts of ways, but I want to focus on this. Thinking of God is hard. And I would suggest that the most likely answer is trauma. The most likely cause of us thinking that God is hard and to be terrified of is trauma. Now, when I say trauma, this could include experiences of injustice or mistreatment. Could include relational breakdowns like divorce. Could include war, experiences of war or other forms of violence. These are all types of trauma that can lead somebody, I'm sure we even know people, can lead somebody to kind of think that God is hard. But there are also more subtle forms of trauma that can be equally as damaging, such as living in an environment of emotional or even spiritual abuse for a prolonged period of time. Bezel van der Kolk, who's a pioneer in trauma research, he defines trauma as simply an experience that basically leaves people stuck in a state of helplessness and terror. He explains that in trauma, our mind and brain become overwhelmed, resulting in a change in how we perceive danger and what we consider relevant and irrelevant to our survival, right? What we consider important in our life, what we think would be the best decision to make in any given situation. And if this is true, if we can be prone to misperceive God as a result of not something wrong with, with us so much, I mean, yes, we're sinful, but, but something that happened to us, then this makes the master's condemnation of the third servant feel all the more, frankly, unfair, if you can go with me on that. In verse 29, when Jesus says, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. From the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away. Well, that verse becomes all downright haunting. So I was left wondering, how could this be? How could the Lord allow things to be this way? Right? Maybe it was pretty easy to, for the, the, the first two servants to go and do the right thing with what they've been given because they had a general positive outlook about how things would go with that and, and about, about who the master was and his character and all those sorts of things. But what about this, this third servant? So I went searching for answers. And what began to unlock it for me was a sermon I came across on this parable by Laura Herbert, who, Harbert, who I mentioned earlier. She's a professor at Fuller Seminary, where Amanda and I both attended. Well, first of all, Harbert observes how the talents themselves are not distributed on the basis of fairness in this parable, right? Verse 15 says, The master gave them according to each servant's ability. So one gets five, one gets two, the third gets one. So even when these talents are understood in that traditional way to represent the gifts of God, Harvard acknowledges that such blessings are not given equally to everybody at all. Everybody has some gifts, but some are blessed in certain ways more than others. But Harvard also introduces the idea that these talents in the parable need not only represent blessings. Because sometimes... What God has entrusted to us 
sometimes what God has entrusted to us is pain. Sometimes what God has entrusted to us is pain. Now, I'm not going to delve into how our pain comes about. We all have our own stories and journeys. I'm not going to suggest that God necessarily causes all of our pain. But I think we can at least agree that God has set up a world where pain is an inevitable reality for all of us to some extent. And it is something God can then use to shape us. But certainly there is no equality in the amount of pain that different people are given or caused to endure in their lives. And just this Laura Harbert was saying that she has a friend who was, for six years of his growing up, was a refugee in a terrible situation. She's about the same age. She's saying, you know, at the same time, I was living an idyllic life, taking piano lessons. Pain is not distributed equally, fairly. There are always going to be people who've endured pain and hardship that you've never experienced, while you may experience pain that others will never know and that you wouldn't wish on anybody, even your worst enemy, right? And yet, Harbert suggests that it is how we steward our pain that really determines how we move into adulthood and how emotionally mature we become. So Harbert suggests that the meaning of this parable is that it doesn't really matter what you've been given, whether it be positively in regard to gifts or negatively in regard to pain and hardship. No matter what you've given, it's not going to be fair. But what matters is what we do with it. She says the Lord has placed a cup into each of our hands, right? And what we have to decide is whether we're willing to drink it. And if we read this parable then through the lens, this lens of pain, Christ's encouragement to us is that we be like the first two servants. What would that mean? It would mean facing our pain and being willing to risk the vulnerability that that requires. But the parable's warning then is to not be like the third servant which is to say that the worst thing we can do with whatever pain we've been given is to bury it. The worst thing we can do with whatever pain we've been given is to bury it. And yet this tends to be people's most common response to trauma. Some bury their pain by suppressing it, by stuffing and attempting to ignore it, Others have buried their pain by repressing it, which is to say they don't even remember the trauma or are at, least, at least haven't made the connection to how that trauma long ago may be affecting their relationship with God now and their relationships with others now. They haven't kind of made the link. There's a guy I know, we'll call him Sam. He's been going through some hard things. Hard enough that it's forced him to look at some baggage that he's never really been willing to look at before. He grew up in an environment that externally appeared very functional and well-adjusted, right? Middle class, 
all of his material needs met, so on and so forth. However, his dad, Sam's dad, had this anger problem that his dad never really dealt with. You might even say that his dad was a hard man. And what this meant was that there was never any space for Sam, growing up in that home, to ever express really pain or any negative emotion himself, right? All the oxygen for that was taken up by dad's anger problem and walking on eggshells to not set him off, right? And so it's little wonder then that for Sam, this got projected onto God, right? which Sam told me he didn't realize until recently. He said he actually didn't know how afraid he was of God until he started paying more attention to the bodily sensations he would have when he would pray. And he realized in hindsight that for years, when he would approach God in prayer, the hair on, his ba- on the back of his neck would stand up. Just how his body responded. Consequently, he confessed that prayer for him had always featured this bind of simultaneously desiring God's presence and yet also bracing for impact. I'm listening to this thinking, have mercy, Lord. So what Sam in our parable highlight is the difference between someone having a good fear of God and a bad fear of God. The first two servants in the parable represent what having a good and healthy fear of God looks like. This comes from respecting the gift of life with God and that gift and, and understanding that we're going to answer for it, right? So taking it seriously. But there's also a bad fear of God, which is really more like being terrified of him and failing to grasp his love in here even if we know it up here. And this is represented in the third servant and has played out in the life of Sam, who I'm telling you about. Though I should say that the traumatic roots that lead someone to intuit that God is hard will not only affect how they approach God, but it will affect all of their human relationships. The more intimate, important relationship, the more it will affect it. Well, if this is the case for us, right, that we have our, had our view of God distorted in some way like this, which is probably the case at least to some small extent for everybody, what can we possibly do about it? You know, if my goal as a preacher is to show you God, right, as the scripture says, let us see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. If that's really my goal as a preacher and to help you to better understand and more accurately perceive who God is and what his character is really like, even if I do that job, you know, adequately, but I'm speaking to your mind, if your relational instincts in your heart tell you something different, it's not really going to matter what you've heard or what you intellectually believe, Right? The heart's going to override it every time. It's been said that the longest journey one can ever take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart, right? Or 15, I don't know. 
At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what we believe intellectually about God if our heart has been formed to believe something else and something worse. But this is why we can't afford then to bury any pain that we've been given. For any pain we've buried, we need to seek out a safe place to dig it up. If the Christian's journey of sanctification is really about the healing of our souls, then it's our responsibility to engage that, right? We're responsible for engaging with God on this front. Nobody can make us. Even God can't make us, right? We can go our whole lives saying, nope, not going to look at that. And he'll let us, but we won't. It will limit the extent that we can enter into the joy of our master. Jesus' hope is, is that we'll push past that unwillingness. His promise is, is that even, there's even more of the kingdom life than we've experienced is what he's promising us. If we'll do it. You may say, well, how do I start? Well, I would say that this is Christ's intention for his church. That we will not only be willing to share our gifts to bless one another, but that we will also be willing to risk sharing about our pain with another. As Harbert says, this looks like you listening to me, me listening to you, you know, you and me being anybody in the church that's safe and trustworthy, doesn't have to be the priest. You listen to me, me listen to you, where two or three are gathered, the Lord being in our midst and our burdens getting lighter as a result. Certainly shame getting lighter. Right? The antidote for shame is knowing I'm not the only person who's ever, gotten, ever struggled with that. The path to healing for our pain is vulnerability with another, with others in the Lord. And for today, I'll leave it there. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.